0: 1 Corinthians chapter 3, from verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, Are ye not carnal, and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's just briefly be upstanding for prayer. Just for a moment, let us stand as we pray. Lord, again we are before Thee. We come to seek Thee tonight. We come to hear from Thee. We come for a word from God to our souls. I pray that by Thy Spirit, Thou wilt minister graciously to me and to the congregation, to all who We'll watch on even later or listen to the message later. Lord, speak to us all through thy word, by thy spirit. We realize that nothing will be accomplished unless it is done by the Lord. And so we look to thee, and I pray that thou will give to me the power that I need and the grace that I need to proclaim thy word and give grace to the hearers as well. Be with us now. And let thy great name be exalted in all that we say, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. You may have heard of, or you may even have read, the Dickens' novel, Great Expectations. In the church of Jesus Christ, there should be great expectations. Now, I know at this particular point in your church's history, you are without a minister, that is, a regular under-shepherd. God willing, one of these days, and we don't know when that will be, but when the Lord is pleased to provide, there will be a minister again in situ here, and as minister and people you will start out together on a new pathway in such circumstances, and actually in every circumstance in which the church finds itself, there's a text of Scripture that is very appropriate. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul is referring here to the ministry, and he's referring to the people of God connected to that ministry, and he's referring to the Lord himself who oversees the ministry, and he says, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. We are laborers together with God. If you think about it, that verse speaks about God's man as a minister. It refers to the Lord's people as members. And it mentions God himself who is our master. So the text is appropriate to think about in relation to expectations that there are of the minister, of the members, and of the master. There is, to be in the work of the Lord in the church, great expectations with regard to all three parties. That's the theme that I want to dwell on tonight. Great expectations in the work of God. And in the first place, I want us to think about this. What the members of the church ought to expect of a minister. What the members of a church ought to expect of a minister. I think there are some congregations who have very strange ideas about what a minister should be. Uh, Oftentimes the idea is that, well, he should be a good socializer. He should be a good storyteller, you know, kind of an after-dinner speaker, one who is very good at community community functions. Uh, He might even be somebody who's good at certain sports that they play in some churches like badminton or bowls or something like that. But Christian people, true believers, people who are serious about the things of God in the church, expect real spiritual qualities in a minister. And it's only but right that they ought to expect a certain standard of the man of God. There ought to be great expectations of the minister as a preacher, first of all, as a preacher. God calls men to be preachers. This very epistle, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 21, contains the words of Paul, where he says, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching To save them that believe. The foolishness of preaching. Not, I hasten to add, the preaching of foolishness. But the foolishness of preaching. The minister's chief function is to be a preacher. When I was in the theological hall in Northern Ireland, we had a professor of homiletics called Dr. S.B. Cook. Tremendous preacher in his own right a man of God that we hold in great esteem. I recall when men used to come in at the start for his class, when he was beginning his lectures, at the very start of a semester, at the very start of the year, he would say, brethren, in all of the other classes that you will attend in the theological hall, you will get the ingredients for the cake. But in my class, this is where the cake is baked. This is where the cake is baked. And he would expand expand upon that. He would expound the idea that a congregation must and will expect a man to be a preacher. He said that's what we're in the business of doing is honing the skills of preachers. And we can't make preachers We can't manufacture preachers. The Lord must call men to be preachers. And we can only seek to work with the material the Lord gives us. And he used to tell us, when you go into certain congregations, you'll have old Farmer Joe, and you'll have some little old lady in the church. They may not seem like they're all that important. But he says, one thing I'll tell you, particularly in the free church, they know good preaching. And they also know what's not good preaching. The congregation should expect that a man be a preacher, and as a preacher, they should have great expectations that he be faithful to Scripture. A verse that means a lot to me, it's actually in a frame that's in my pulpit underneath where I preach, is preach the Word. My sister did it for me as a calligraphy. It was a verse that meant a lot and has meant a lot to my life and ministry, and it was actually preached upon the night of my ordination preach the word second timothy 4 and verse 2 preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with all long suffering and doctrine the minister is to be a preacher who is faithful to scripture look at second corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 for we are not as many, Paul says, which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We are preachers of the word. And he went on to say in chapter 4 of that epistle, Second Corinthians 4, the first two verses, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The minister we must expect to be faithful to Scripture. Scriptural preaching. Where the Bible is opened, it's read, and it is expounded in all of the services. It's a sad reality that today some attend upon ministers who deny the Bible and do not preach the gospel. The Bible says if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. But we have a right to expect a minister of the gospel to speak words which become sound doctrine. And we could consider A lot of verses that deal with that in the so-called pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, you'll see copious references to doctrine. The word means teaching. Give attendance to reading, Paul said to Timothy. Preach the word, he said to Timothy. Over and over again, he is emphasizing even to the elders that they are to be men of the Scriptures. So scriptural preaching is that which we must expect from a minister. The people have a right to expect a minister to be a preacher who is faithful to Scripture, but also one who is fervent in spirit. A man who speaks from the heart. He speaks from the heart which feels the message. And oh, what an important thing that is. That we feel what we preach. That we come with our whole heart in the message. 2 Corinthians 4.13 puts it like this. We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. We believe and therefore speak. Someone in Greenville once said that Dr. Cairns, you always think you're right, don't you? And Mr. Cairns answered in the way that only he could. Well, do you think I'm preaching it because I think I'm wrong? Of course I believe what I'm preaching. That's what I'm supposed to do. And preaching can be sound in doctrine, yes. And the theology, correct, yes. But without passion, it could have a deadening effect. Preaching can be sound, but it can be so sound that folks are sound asleep when they listen to it. Look at the passage that we're dealing with, 1 Corinthians 3, in verses 5 and 6, Paul says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, preachers are to preach the word. They are to preach the word, expecting the Lord to use it. And when you go to Second Corinthians to the chapter 3, you'll see where Paul's dependence was for preaching. At the end of verse 5, he says, our sufficiency is of God. There it is again. God gives the increase, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, Preachers must exhort their hearers as well as teach them. They must implore as well as instruct. When Paul talked to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he said, therefore watch and remember. Remember how I preached. That by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. With real passion. All the people, the members, have a right to expect a minister to be faithful as a preacher, to be faithful to Scripture, to be fervent in spirit. Members should also expect something of their minister as a pastor. Acts 20, verse 20, the Apostle writes, How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly. And from house to house. Preaching is the main business of the minister, but he does have responsibilities outside the pulpit as well. There are times when he must visit the sick and the infirm, who must give help and counsel to his people privately and personally as they seek for that. Sometimes people I know will tell me things in the privacy of their own home that they will not want to tell out in public, and quite rightly so. And the man of God as a pastor must be prepared for that and ask the Lord to give him wisdom so that he will provide godly advice to his congregation. We need men like that. A godly pastor is going to be a friend to you. He may not be your buddy, but he'll be your friend. He will be, if he's a man of God, approachable. He'll not be all tetchy and prickly when you try to question him about something. He will be approachable. He'll not always agree with you. He might tell you, no, I don't agree with that. But he will want to be available to help. That's what men of God do. I always like to say to my own people, remember that I am not a mind reader. I'm not omniscient. If someone is ill and that person is in hospital, I won't know that unless somebody tells me. And sometimes you can have people to say, well, he didn't bother with this, and he didn't bother with that, when in fact he didn't know anything about what was going on. I had that once in my ministry, my early ministry, where there was a lady who was not a member of our church, but her daughter called me one day, really indignant That her mom had not been well and I hadn't bothered with her mother. Well, the thing is, I had gone to her mother's home and the neighbor across the way had told me that this lady had gone to visit her relative, her son, over in England. And that she was going to be there for a couple of months. Well, what actually happened was in the intervening time, she was not able to make it. She took unwell. But I didn't know anything about that. No one told me. But I got it in the neck because I was not omniscient. I hadn't figured it out that this lady was not well. You have to tell your pastor, or he won't know. That's just a practical point. But ministers must expect their pastor to be that, to be a pastor. The word pastor really is closely aligned with the word shepherd. And a shepherd loves his sheep, and he's among his sheep. He knows his sheep. And the sheep are comfortable around him. And therefore the pastor, the feeder, the shepherd has certain expectations that are upon him. Then the ministers may or sorry, the members may expect a minister of Christ to be an outstanding man as a prayer warrior. Yes, a preacher, yes, a pastor, but a prayer warrior, a man of prayer. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote to God's people in chapter 1, verse 3, saying, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The thing that's interesting about that is Paul told all the congregations that he wrote to the same thing, and he told Timothy the same thing. And you'll find this throughout the epistles of Paul, replete references and constant assurances to God's people regarding his prayers for them. Paul must have had a huge prayer list. He prayed for God's people and he told them so. And he said to Timothy, night and day I pray for you. The minister ought to care enough for those under his charge to pray for them. I'm not only charged to speak for God to men, But I am charged to speak for men to God, to pray for them. And as you continue to search for a pastor, that you as you continue to pray that the Lord will raise up an under shepherd, may the Lord give you a faithful preacher, pastor, and prayer warrior. You should have those great expectations of the minister. But what about the Lord's people? It's your turn. What about the members of the church? What any minister of the church ought to expect of his members? Of course, there's no perfect minister on the earth, and guess what? There's no perfect congregation either. The only perfect assembly that I find in Scripture is in Hebrews chapter 12, where it speaks in verse 23 of the general assembly, and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Talks about God who's the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. So there's perfection. All the warts are gone. All the imperfections are gone. They're now in heaven. They're in the sweet by and by, but we are here in the nasty now and now. We're not in heaven yet. The only perfect assembly is in glory. But in Scripture, we can see some marks of godly people that ought to be seen in the membership. Notice again the text, we, we are laborers together with God. Who are the we? Well, the we are the ministers, Paul, Apollos, and others, who he mentions in verse 5 are ministers by whom they believe, but also the people. We are laborers together with God. And there are marks of godly people that should be seen in the membership of any Bible-believing church. The minister should expect his members to be present and not careless. I know it might sound as if it's self-serving for preachers to say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Because obviously he wants the people to be there because he's the preacher. And he doesn't want to be looking out on empty seats or pews whatever the case may be but we're not here just for the preacher we're here to meet with the lord and hebrews 10:25 does say not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching now when it says not forsaking the assembling it when it uses the word forsaking, is using a word that could be rendered abandoning. Giving it up. Not forsaking, not abandoning. The assembling. And that word assembling is the word from which we get synagogue in the New Testament. So you could translate this, not abandoning the synagoguing of ourselves together. And of course the New Testament church was based upon the synagogue in terms of how they met, what they did when they met. Public worship is a means of grace. And we ought to be there if at all humanly possible. Now there are times when we can't be there. There are circumstances that prevent us from being there. We are prevented by providence. Someone said, I'll be there if there's no preventing providence and if the crick doesn't rise. There are things that can keep us from the house of God. But you know this, if some people attended their place of employment like they do church, they would be fired. What do you call it here, the pink slip? In my country, they call it the P45. It's a slip that you get when you're being told goodbye. They call it getting the sack over there. Now, some of you ladies are very good cooks, I know that. How would you feel if you went to a lot of trouble, not only gathering the ingredients, putting them all together, but you spent a lot of time in your kitchen preparing a meal, specially for the minister, and when he was supposed to come, he just couldn't be bothered showing up. And you call, Pastor, would you come for supper tonight? Yeah, but there was something on the TV I really wanted to watch, so I decided not to come. That would go over like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be a really good way to become popular with members of your congregation. But guess what? A message from God's Word is like a prepared meal. Would you just not bother to come for it? Years ago, when I first visited the church in, was, at that time it was in Newtown Square. it's now in Malvern, I was amazed, absolutely dumbfounded at the distances that people were willing to travel to come to that church. I had the idea that they all sort of lived, you know, within a few miles, like many people do in Ulster in the churches there. And I find it from this brother and that brother, this, this man and this family, they come an hour and a half. These people here, they come almost two hours. These folks here, they come 45 minutes. And that's the way it was all across the congregation. I thought, wow, these people really make a sacrifice to be in the house of God. And they were there all the time. That's a great thing. A great thing that we be present and not careless. A minister should have great expectations of the members that they are prayerful and not critical. My senior minister back in Ulster when I was a probationer minister used to say to me, if you're going to talk about someone, the place to talk about them is at the throne of grace. Don't get a reputation in your, con- in your congregation that you're talking about the people to other of the people. You know, if we prayed for others as much as we tend to criticize and complain about others, both we and they would be so much better off. When you get a minister here, I'm going to say when, not if, when you get a minister here, determined to pray for him. He will have faults. He will not be perfect. There'll be things about him that you perhaps don't like. He may have quirks in his personality. He may not be just your cup of tea but don't be going home every Lord's Day and having roast preacher for Sunday lunch. That gives you indigestion. Pray for him. Lord, he's got things that need to be ironed out. Lord, take a dealing with him on those things. Help him with those things. Give him wisdom. Give him grace. Help him to be what you would want him to be. Romans 15, verse 30, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren. That has the thought behind it of begging them. I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Then he tells them the things that he wants them to pray for. But the important, the important line there is that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That word in the original is agonizomai. I'm sure you can guess the word agonize in English comes from that. Do we, know any, do we know anything about that, agonizing in prayer? Paul said, I want you to agonize with me in your prayers to God for me. I want you to take me on your heart. I want you to pray for me. And a minister ought to expect the members of his church to be prayerful and not critical To be much in prayer, one for another in the work of God. To be a praying people in private and, yes, in public. Because the prayer meetings of the church are vital. Some folks came to visit Spurgeon once in the tabernacle in London. And they were amazed at his ministry. And some of them were asking, Mr. Spurgeon, what do you think really is the secret of your ministry. There's people coming by the thousands every Lord's day morning and evening, and people getting converted. What is the secret of your ministry? Spurgeon said, I want to show you something. He took them downstairs into the bowels of his church. And there was a gathering of people there at that very time, probably in excess of 200, and they were having a prayer meeting. And they were going to be praying for the preacher while he was upstairs preaching the word. And they said, Folks, that is, the secret. that is the secret of the success of our church, because this is the engine room of the church. We must go forward on our knees. A godly minister has great expectations that the Lord's people be present and not careless, that they be prayerful and not critical, that they be passionate and not cold, That they be folks who have a burning love, first of all, for the Savior. That they love Christ with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. When the apostle wrote to the Corinthian church in the second epistle, in chapter 11 and verse 2, he said this, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin virgin, to Christ, people who are devoted to the Savior. That's what we should expect of the members, that they have a burning love for the Savior, that they have a love for the saints. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples would be the way that others could tell that they loved or that they were his disciples, that they loved one another? John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. What a standard that is. As I have loved you, that ye love one another. Do we love each other the way Christ loves us? And then he said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. They will know we are his disciples by our love. That's not something that ought to be just allowed to go by the board and be claimed by charismatics and by lovey-dovey types. No, we are to love one another. We're to be passionate, not cold. We love the Savior. We love the saints. And yes, we should love the sinners of this world. He that winneth souls is wise. God's people need to love the lost. It has been said, if you do not have a desire to bring others with you to heaven, it's doubtful if you're going there yourself. That's quite a statement, but I think it's true. Do we have a love for souls in our hearts? Look at our Savior. He is our great example in everything, isn't he? In prayer, in preaching, in the passion that he had. We read of our Lord in Matthew's gospel in chapter 9 and verse number 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion on them. The great Scottish preacher, George Matheson, one day was standing in a Glasgow street and his mother came walking along and she saw that George was weeping copiously, tears running down his face. She said, George, what's wrong? He said, Mother, I'm just watching these teeming multitudes of people walking by me here and I'm wondering how it is with their souls. Are they walking the broad road to hell? I need to have a burden and passion for the lost. I need my congregation to have a similar burden. May the Lord help us to be like that, to be a people like that, who are passionate about the Savior, about the other saints of God in the church, and about the sinners of this world. But when we're thinking about great expectations, there's a third aspect. We've talked about what the minister, what the congregation, what the members should expect of a minister, what the minister should expect of the members. But how about what the master of the church expects of both the minister and the members? You see, we're both answerable to him, not just to one another. Not just the ministers answerable to the people; the people are answerable to him. We're answerable, both of us, to the Lord. Some words that are found in First Thessalonians chapter two are appropriate here. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse four and verse twelve. Verse four: But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth. Our hearts. And then verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So here he's speaking about himself as a minister. I'm not to be one who's pleasing men, but God who tries our hearts. But then, congregation, you're to walk worthy of God who's called you unto his kingdom and glory. Great expectations that God has as our master. And by far the most important consideration tonight is what does the Lord expect of us? Well, the Master Himself clearly expects of us a worship that extols Him. Jesus said, John chapter 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must, not should, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He tells us in the previous verse that the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Lord's looking for worshippers, And it's quite a thought that when we come to the house of God, it should be first and foremost to worship the Lord. And secondly, to fellowship with others. Not the other way around. Some people will have said, I'm not going to that church because there's not really very great fellowship there. Well, is the Lord there? Is Christ preached there? That should be your first consideration. And then the fellowship with others will come after that. The Lord's looking out for worshipers. Some will say, well, I don't really get a whole lot out of that service. Well, it's not about what you get out of the service. It's what the Lord gets out of it. That's why we should be here. We're here to worship him, to give glory to his name. And if we're giving to him the glory that's due to his name, we will get lots out of it in return. The Lord will bless us. But that's not our motivation. It's not what what can the church do for me. It's what can we do for the Lord. How can we please the Lord today? How can we glorify his name? We come to the services if we are right with God with hearts that are prepared for worship. Think of what it says in Exodus 19. Please turn there for a moment. I just want to speak about this very briefly. Exodus chapter 19. And it speaks to what I'm saying about services in the house of God and about the church and why it exists. Exodus 19 and verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to do what? To meet with God. That's why they were there. To meet with God. If I'm there, speaking about the church, for some other reason, I'm there for the wrong reason. He brought the people out to meet with God. So when we come to the services, it ought to be with hearts that are prepared for worship. Worshiping Him. The word worship is a word that comes from an old English word that, that really refers to worship. Ascribing to God his worth. And that really is speaking to the importance of cultivating an attitude of worship. I'm coming to meet with God, to please him. Even before the service begins, Psalm 89, verse number 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. All that we do ought to be rendered as worship. And if it's not worship, we should dispense with it. This is one of the expectations that God has as the master of his church, a worship that extols him but also he expects of us a witness that exalts him. I've spoken a little bit already about soul winning. But reaching people for Christ is not the work of one man. It's not the work just of a minister. Back there in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, we have the words of the Lord to the assembled disciples as he was on his way to heaven He said to them, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You could translate that. You're going to receive the power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you. And here's the result of that. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. A witness that exalts him. Someone called the Great Commission the work of the whole church for the whole age to the whole world. Spreading God's word. This is the work of both pastor and people. Therefore, in some way, shape, or form, we should all get involved as minister and members in the outreach of the assembly. You say, well, I invite people to the house of God and they don't come. I do too. I've had so many promises. It's not real. Unfulfilled promises, by the way. But that doesn't mean I'm not to keep on trying and keep on praying. In Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it talks about a great persecution that was going on against the church and they were all scattered abroad. So what did they do when they were scattered abroad? Acts 8 verse 4, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And the word there signifies gossiping the word. They just were talking about the word everywhere they went. Is that what we do? When we meet people every day that we live, that we have an opportunity to say something? Now you don't always have an opportunity. Sometimes you get an opportunity. Sometimes there's no opportunity. But you ought to pray for opportunities. You ought to pray for openings. And I look at the scripture and see those who witnessed for the Lord and how they were available to be used of God. I think of the demoniac of Gadara. The Lord had done such a great work in his heart that he went to 10 cities, Decapolis, 10 cities, to tell them what great things the Lord had done for him. The woman at the well, when she was converted, what did she do? She went to see the men who had been her former clientele, to tell them about this man and what he meant to her now, Jesus, She testified of him. I think of Andrew. One of the greatest things he ever did was to bring his brother to Jesus, Simon Peter. Evangelism is not just for ministers and foreign missionaries. But as the children's chorus puts it, you in your small corner and I in mine. That's where Jesus bids us shine. The Lord expects of minister and people a witness that exalts him, a worship that extols him. But also a walk that exhibits him. A walk that exhibits him. I note what it said of those in the early church in Acts 4. In verse 13, Peter and John, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and noticed this, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Tell me, do others see the Lord in you? do they see the Lord in me? Not just here in the church services, but out there every day in our walk, in our talk, do people see Christ in us? The little chorus puts it like this, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All His wonderful passion and purity, O Thy Spirit divine, all my nature refined, so that the beauty of Jesus may be seen in me. We need the Lord to help us. In Psalm 90, there are two things that are spoken about in the closing verses. One is our work, and the other is the Lord's work. The prayer of verse 16 of Psalm 90 is, Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And then there's this. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. See that? In verse 16, let thy work appear. Verse 17, the work of our hands. We are laborers together with God. And holiness of life is vital for both pastor and people. Robert Murray McShane was such a man that he was referred to commonly as the sainted or the godly McShane. And it wasn't always just because of what he said, but the demeanor that he had, the gait that he walked with, just when people saw him, there was something about him. And once McShane was not well, he went to the Holy Land to convalesce from an illness. And he was in a hotel in a big day room with a group of people, and they got up and left the room to go do something. There was another minister there from Scotland who had accompanied him on that trip. And when McShane left the room, that man began to wail and weep and cry. could hardly get himself composed. And people thought, what in the world is wrong with him? He got himself quiet down and settled down, and pointing to the door, he said, folks, That is the most Jesus-like man I have ever seen in my life. He reminds me of Christ. Now, where does that come from? That comes from walking with God. And our walk is perhaps more vital than our talk because, you see, the life that we live will determine whether folks take us seriously or not whether they're going to take heed to the things that come from our lips is going to depend largely on what they think of our testimony. And of course, we're all imperfect. No one's ever going to think that we're perfect. But surely we have a right to think that they should expect from us godliness of life. Something will impact them to such a degree that they wonder what it, what it is that makes us tick, what it is that, that we have that they haven't got. Paul, right into the Thessalonians, he said, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10, Dear witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Lived in such a holy fashion before them. We recall that lady with the son who had taken ill. She saw Elisha passing by and she said, I perceive that thou art a man of God. Why did she perceive that? Oh, by the grace of God, may we seek to live up to expectations. May our labors together in the work of the Lord be owned and blessed of the Lord even right here. For Paul says we are laborers together with God. What a great privilege that is. What a great honor that is to work in harness with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be laboring with Him in the service of the Master. May the Lord help us. May the Lord give us grace. Amen.